All right, as John said, we're talking about the redemptive life. Um, we talked about redemptive worship and how we can redeem our worship. Um, we, for the first four weeks and the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about redemptive work and how uh, our work is participating with Christ in the redemption of creation. We have looked at, we've looked at it from that lens, so the, the two big theological aspects of it. So, as John kind of mentioned, looking back to the garden, so our, our work is is in culture making is fulfilling the creation mandate. So whatever it is that you do for work, you are fulfilling the creation mandate. And that in itself has intrinsic value. Okay, it is good. The work that you do is good. Okay, it's not solely the, the work of evangelism that you do when you go to work that is good, or, or the like, specific things that you do there to reflect Jesus. Those are great, but, and this isn't like a good to great thing, right? The work that you do itself is good. That's the idea that I want, we've been trying to communicate. Um, and then, the, when we look ahead to the new creation, what we are doing in our work, as John was just saying, is reflecting or, or trying to reflect God's kingdom here so that the church, our heart, our attitude, who we are, should look like God's kingdom. Okay? So those are the two theological, the big theological perspective that I want you guys to be seeing and getting as we go through this series. Um, and for the next couple of weeks, we're going to try to get a little bit more specific and kind of dive in on work a little bit more. Um, and we're, we're going to talk about what, is, what does this work look like? Um, and we're going to talk about it through the lens of calling. Okay. So when we think of calling, <clears throat> I have, well... Before we even get there, whenever I have conversations with people about faith and work, usually the conversation goes to one of two directions. One is towards how to share your faith in a winsome way that isn't overbearing. Okay? Nobody says it like that, but that's, <laughs> that's how I've kind of synthesized it. Um, how do you share your faith in a way that is, that is and it's not overbearing? Okay, that's um, kind of... What we've been talking about, as I already mentioned, is to help give you a bigger framework for work. That the only thing that you, it's that's not the only thing that you're doing for God at work. The work that you do is working for God and for His kingdom. Is what we've been trying to do the last couple of weeks. Give you that bigger framework, and then second, where else it goes is how do I choose a career path, or choose a vocation, or a job, whatever it is that God is calling me to do. So a lot of that depends on how unsettled you are in your current occupation, or if you like, are in college, or you're going to be choosing an occupation, or you're looking for a new job, whatever. Okay? It depends on where your phase of life is and what you're, what you're, what's happening around you, but most conversations go to one of those two directions. So now we're going to kind of tease out that second one about calling and what am I called to do in the world, okay? and we're going to look at that for the next couple of weeks. So, okay, when we talk about calling, <laughs> we, it always goes to what am I going to do, right? Um, but when we look at the New Testament and we look at the word call and how it tends to be used, the ESV translates that word almost 300 times, okay? So it's a very common <laughs> word. It's a common concept in the New Testament. Um, it's a bunch of different words that it translates as call, uh, the most common one is kaleo, okay? You don't need to know that. Why did I say that? Um, but what, how it's usually used is like in the literal sense, um, the most common way is like 
calling out to somebody, like, hey, come here, <laughs> or calling to someone. Uh, and then second, it's often used as like calling somebody a name. So it's like a personal designation of someone. And as we know, as we've talked about, in, in this culture, somebody's name means more than just how you identify. Okay? Your name says something about who you are in this culture. Okay? Like in Matthew 121, it says this, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because it says something about who he is and what he will do. For he will save his people from their sins. Okay? So the, the, his name implies something about who he is and what he will do. And the third way that call is usually used is calling somebody, like an invitation or calling somebody to be a, a recipient of a special benefit is how the lexicon defines it. But it means calling somebody to be a recipient of God's grace, to, to become a child of God is usually how that word is used, the most common uses of it. Okay, and... Christian thinkers, so this is, so with that framework in mind, Christian thinkers have, throughout history, recognized that there are three different callings on the Christian life. Okay, these aren't biblical categories, okay, kind of like the categories of the law, where it's just like helping you get a bigger picture framework of, of calling on your life. So these aren't biblical frameworks, but I think they're pretty helpful for us. Um, the first one is that we are called to bear God's image, which we've talked a lot about. That is all humans have that calling in their life. And the second calling is for uh, specifically Christians to fulfill the general rules and uh, obligations, identity pieces, all of that stuff about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Okay, so that's like love your neighbor. Christians are called to do that, all of us. Okay, and then there's the third one, which is your specific calling, which is like your vocation and what God has called you specifically to do. And that one we're going to talk about next week. But... I want to kind of tease out a little bit the, the biblical use of calling first, okay? And those, those well, second and third senses that the word calling tends to be used. So we see it in a couple of different places. Romans 1.7, the Apostle Paul says, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Okay? So notice that. They are called to be saints. This is this calling, God's invitation, God's, God's uh, calling them to be something, someone. And then next, Ephesians 4.1 says, I therefore, again, this is Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So what he means here is, I want you to live, I want your behavior to line up with your identity. The calling to come and to be God's child is what he's getting at here. So you have been called to be a child of God, to be saved in this special relationship, a recipient of God's grace. You have been called to that identity. Now live in light of that, is what Paul's saying here. Romans 8, 28, the famous verse, okay? <laughs> and I'm going to leave a lot of you guys wanting here, okay? And I know that. I'm not going to pick apart this verse because I don't have time, all right? <laughs> Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know, we're just, we're just looking at specifically for this calling language, okay? For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called 
according to his purpose. So again, this word calling, it, it implies, if we read this in the context, what Paul is saying here is, those of you who have been called and chosen to be children of God. Okay? So if you have been called to that, that is your identity now, and that according to his purpose is referring to God's will in choosing you and calling you, okay? That's why all things work out together for good, because God has called you and God always fulfills his purposes. So then when you are called and you become a child of God, then your aims, your goals are God's will being accomplished and God always accomplishes his will, okay? So it's not that if you believe in Jesus, then everything's going to be good in your life. That's not what that means. I've got to clarify that one. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And this is where a lot of people get a little like itchy and scratchy and squirmy in their seats when they read this language. This is in the Bible, okay? So you have to wrestle with it. And if you're uncomfortable with it, you got to... I'm not going to give you answers, okay? Think about it. Reflect on it. If you're uncomfortable, ask yourself why and dive into this text this week, Okay? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that, okay, again, see what's in view? Being conformed to the image of his son. Becoming something new. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay, so this is God's work in changing the believer. He predestines. He calls, he justifies, he glorifies. God does all of this in the believer, okay? And that's what Paul is saying here. So this calling language, it is wrapped up not just in what you do, but in who you are, okay? So when we talk about calling, the big idea today is we need to focus more on who we are called to be in Christ and less on what we are called to do for Christ. Okay? Just let that sit in for a second. We need to focus more on who we are called to be in Christ and less on what we are called to do for Christ. I think if we focus on who we are called to be in Christ, then the latter will take care of itself in a lot of ways. But I think it's true that in our culture, we tend to always think we, we tend to go to what we are supposed to do first, right? Instead of thinking, who am I supposed to be? And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Band, you guys can come on up and get set up. There's a lot of reasons for that. And I, 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 I want to invite you to think about this. If, if you think of calling in terms of what am I supposed to do with my life, or what am I supposed to do next, or who am I supposed to help, or what's in front of me and I'm supposed to do, reflect on why that is. When there's so much biblical evidence that points to who you are called to be, and not just what you are called to do. I think we live in this performance-driven culture that doing something produces more tangible results. So when we're called to do something, there's a, there's a tangible thing for me to do, and then I can measure if I've accomplished that or not. When we think about who we are and what we're supposed to be, there's not a lot of tangible, results-driven basis for seeing your progress. Only you know that. 
We can look at your actions and say, it seems as if this person is growing and being discipled in Jesus, but I don't know the motivations of your heart. Nobody else does. This is a personal self-reflective thing where you can examine your personal growth in Jesus, but many others can't put a tangible results-driven number on that. And in line with that, I think doing something for some for someone or doing what God has called us to do, it, it gives us more, more recognition from others and more self-satisfaction. Again, this is only something that you can examine in your own heart. It is outward focused. People can see what you have done. They recognize it and they can say, good job, pat on the back. But your internal spiritual growth and who you are, who you are becoming for in, in Jesus, people can't see that. That's the stuff that's done in secret. And then we also don't like it because if we're focused on who we are and what we do, we can't segment it to the different areas of our life. Coming to church is something that you can check our box and say, I did that. We tend to view our, our spiritual life and serving Jesus as these things that we do. You can come to church, you can check that off. You can go to a service project, you can check that off. You did it, it's done, and then the rest of your time, you can spend doing something else and, and not doing it for Christ, right? But if we're focused on who you are, you can't segment that. That doesn't stop at the door of work. Okay, that doesn't stop at the door of, of volunteering, at coming to church. It doesn't stop anywhere. It's just a reflection of who you are. It's an outpouring of your inner nature. Okay? So I think those are some reasons why we tend to do this. And when I come back up, I'll, I will look at one more text and kind of explore how, how we can do this. You guys can have a seat for a couple of minutes. All right. So remember our big idea is that we need to focus more on who who we are called to be in Christ and less on what we are called to do for Christ. Certainly that doesn't mean that we aren't called to do anything for Christ either. We'll talk about that next week. In fact, the text that we're about to read implies that there are things we are supposed to do. But there is one, uh, one text. These words of Jesus that we are about to read, they encapsulate both of these ideas so well. In Matthew 5.13, after listing the Beatitudes, redefining for them what a blessed life actually looks like, redefining for uh, Jesus and his disciples and those who will follow him, and the blessed life doesn't look like these things. It doesn't look like the things that we tend to signify as blessings from God, like health, wealth, prosperity, uh, power, influence, all that stuff. He says, it's not all that. Jesus gives us a list. And then he says this. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
Next week, we'll tease out a little more about the, the salt and light analogy and what they mean and, and what we're supposed to do in light of what Jesus says and the things that he calls us to, to be a part of his kingdom. But for today, the one thing I want you to notice, very simple idea, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It's not the actions that you do that will bring salt to this earth. It is not that the actions that you do will produce light. No, no, just you, by nature of who you are, as one who has been changed, as a person who has been made new, whose heart has been restored, as a person whom God has taken your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh. He has changed your passions. He has changed your desires. He has completely changed and reformed you. And out of that, you are then salt and light. So wherever you go, you cannot but be salt and light because you have been changed and reformed by Jesus. So what I want us to be thinking about is much less what has Jesus called me to do, but who has Jesus called me to be? So that the actions that I do are just an outpouring of my new life in Christ. It comes natural. It can't be segmented. It may not be able to even be measured, but you just do it because it's who you are. It's authentic, it's genuine, it's not fake. And only you can know this, you and God. I already said Jesus kind of outlines the blessed life and what he's trying to do is change our perspectives on what a blessing from God really looks like. And then he goes into a long talk. On Friday in the devotional, I just read through the Sermon on the Mount. That should make you very uncomfortable reading that. <laughs> he goes into this long talk. And what he does is he makes sin a heart issue, not a behavioral issue. Jesus says probably one of the, the scariest phrases, but also most comforting. In all of scripture, he says, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees or you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's stunning for the people in his audience. The Pharisees were the most righteous behavioral people that they knew of. But Jesus constantly criticizes them for their behavior being appropriate, but their heart being far from God. So what Jesus is saying is your heart needs to be changed. You need to have this new life and, and your righteousness will exceed theirs because he has given you a new life. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, it's not just enough to not murder somebody. He says, in fact, if you hate somebody, you've already committed sin in your heart. You've essentially murdered them in your heart. So Jesus moves it from the action of sin to the heart condition of sin. He says it's not enough to, commit, to not commit adultery. Lust is where sin begins. If someone slaps you on the cheek, he says, turn to him the other also. Don't retaliate. Don't fight back. Don't resist. Give to anyone who asks of you, Jesus says. He says, don't just love those who love you, your neighbors who are good to you and kind to you. He says, love your enemies. 
and pray for those who persecute you. It's not just those who are easy to get along with, but those who hate you and are trying to kill you. Love them. This is a heart condition. This isn't just things that you can do. Then he says, pray, give, fast, in secret. So it's just between you and God. So that there's none of this look at me temptation of pride that creeps in. He goes on and on. This whole sermon is just brutal. When you read it and reflect on your own heart, you're like, man, I stink at all these things. But the point is, Jesus is changing you. He's making you into somebody new. Through the power of the Holy Spirit that he gives us, he changes us. And to borrow the title of Sky Tatani's new book, what if Jesus was really serious? <laughs> what if he meant this stuff? What if he meant these are the type of people that we are supposed to be? So that when we become these types of people, everywhere we go, we are bringing salt and light into our immediate environment. What if he meant what he said? <laughs> Such a silly question. But man, we love to neglect, to disobey, to avoid, to ignore the obvious teachings of Jesus of who we are supposed to be as his followers. Because Jesus, he tends to spend a lot more time focusing on who we are and who we are called to be as children of God and inhabitants of his kingdom. And this all starts at the cross, of Jesus making us new. It starts at the cross. Him dying on the cross to save us from our sins, to make us new, to deal with the problem of sin that we couldn't deal with on our own. So when we take communion, that's what we're remembering, that's what we're reflecting on. As you're sitting with the communion elements, I want you to sit and think, about how Christ has made you new. I want you to express your praise to him. I want you to, to think about the former you. It's kind of a scary thought, right? And then think about who you are now and who Jesus has made you and who he is calling you to be. The communion elements are at the back table. So let's start. We can go both sides at a time. Start in the back. Come to the middle, grab the communion elements, and then walk around the side over here. And then as, as the row behind you finishes up, um, just follow, grab your communion elements, and sit, and we will pray for them together. So just hang on to them. We'll pray for them and take them together.